Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. Not long ago, Liberty Magazine's associate editor, Melissa Reed, was a guest on this program and spoke about a recent Religious Liberty Summit that took place in Atlanta, Georgia. She mentioned that one of the speakers was Pastor David Asherich, co-founder and director of Arise Institute, an evangelism training organization based in Oregon. I'm thrilled to say that I've got his presentation queued up for us today. We'll hear part one on this broadcast and enjoy part two on our next LifeQuest Liberty program. History has a lot to teach us about who we are and who we should be as Christians. In this two-part series, we'll learn what got us here and the work that needs to be done. Here's part one of David Asherich's presentation entitled, The Coming Storm. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, if you would. We're seeking to traverse from the founding of the Christian church, and of course from its founder, Jesus Christ, right up to around 1844. And in Luke chapter 4, we encounter what scholars and historians sometimes refer to as the Nazareth Manifesto. The Nazareth Manifesto. I'll pick it up in verse 16, Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book, likely a scroll, in fact, of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So this would have been a daily synagogal reading. Jesus is handed the scroll. He's in his hometown synagogue. There is already a stirring and a sense that there is something unique, something provocative, something special about this young rabbi. And he doesn't just go to whatever the assigned or daily reading that day may have been. The Bible says he found the place. He went and looked for something specific. Now, there wasn't versification and, and chapterization in those days. He must have known the book of Isaiah very well. It's found in what you and I would call Isaiah 40, or in the 40s, the 40s to the 50s. And he begins to read this specific passage that I'll pick up in verse 18. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading from, I think it's Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim what? Liberty. That would be a great name for a magazine, wouldn't it? He has sent me to, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were what? They were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, there must have been something in the way that Jesus read the Scripture. There must have been something in the tone of his voice or in the way he carried himself. Something in his demeanor communicated that something significant, something otherworldly, there was a portent of larger things taking place here. And so as Jesus goes and, and retakes his seat, uh, Luke records that the eyes of all were fixed upon him. What Jesus said next must have been absolutely astonishingly amazing to the people that were in the synagogue that day. As, as he could sense, and you know you can feel when people are staring at you, can't you? He could just sense that everybody was looking at him. He says, today this scripture is what? Fulfilled. And today this scripture... Now, this is an ancient prophecy. This is a prophecy of the servant Israel. This is a prophecy of the great 
plan that God had for Israel, among other things. In fact, the latter half of the book of Isaiah is all about the servant Israel and all these great and grand things that God would do through and in and with Israel. And Jesus here has the audacity to say, today, in his hometown no less, today, this scripture that I have just read is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I want to hone in on the, the final phrase there where Jesus says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is an unambiguous and unmistakable reference to the Jubilee. In fact, this is virtually the universal scholarly consensus that what Jesus is saying is the Jubilee has arrived, the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, there's a very interesting concept about this idea of the Jubilee, which is um, communicated in the uh, Torah, particularly in Leviticus 25. And a jubilee was essentially seven sevens, and it was the day that fall, or the year in, in some cases, that followed the seven sevens. And so you had seven times seven, which would bring 49. That was seven groupings of seven. And uh, the 50th year was the jubilee year. We together, everyone, on that. And uh, on the jubilee year, uh, as it was communicated in the law of Moses, the slaves were to be set free, debts were to be forgiven. It was a great time of celebration and of joy, and it it foretold, it foreshadowed the great liberation that would one day come from sin and from all of Israel's oppressors. So Jesus, again, has the temerity, the audacity to say, today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your ears. The great jubilee, the great liberation is being fulfilled. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, which should be familiar to those of us as Seventh-day Adventists, we find this idea of 70 times 7. Now, if seven times seven is a jubilee, then what would 70 times seven be? It would be a jubilee of jubilees. It would be the great jubilee, the great consummation of the ages. And uh, we actually find that in the 70th week of those 70 weeks, the Bible says that the Messiah would come and he would confirm the covenant with many for one week. He would come and he would ratify, he would put his stamp on the Jubilee. Now, of course, this was not received uh, wonderfully by everyone. It says in verse 22, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, he, he speaks really well, and these are really insightful and, and audacious things that he's saying, but, but don't we know this guy? Verse 23, he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, Heal yourself, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you the truth. Now, this must have been wildly politically incorrect, what Jesus says here next. But I tell you the truth, I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, to the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, you can just imagine how this, this would have sounded in the ears of those people in the synagogue that day, and, and Luke leaves nothing here to the imagination. He tells us, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. Why? Because Jesus' suggestion here is that the Jubilee is actually going to be really great. This amazing thing that God is doing in the world is going to be really great, but for the wrong people. He's suggesting that the wrong people are going to benefit, and he calls here on the experiences of Elijah and of Naaman. 
Jesus seems to be suggesting that God is doing what God will do, but it will not happen in the way that first century Judaism was anticipating. He's doing something new. He's doing something fresh. He's doing something on God's timetable and not the Jews' timetable, not the Jewish leadership's timetable. Everything that Jesus did and every word that Jesus spoke was perfectly pregnant with meaning, particularly in a first century Jewish context. Much of what we read, we have to, through history and through scholarship and through theology, sort of understand in a first century context. But the things that Jesus was doing would have been absolutely widely understood in his context as to the fact that he was establishing and and setting himself up as none other than God's Messiah and the King on earth. He did things like, in his first public presentation in Matthew chapter 5, he repeatedly used the refrain, you have heard, but I say. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever whoever looks on a woman to lusteth after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Six times Jesus employs this refrain, you have heard, but I say purposefully, very intentionally, setting himself over and against the religious leaders of his day. On another occasion, Jesus went into the temple and cleansed the temple of the money changers and then had the audacity to say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Jesus seems to be suggesting here that he is not only the cleanser of the temple, which was in keeping with the first century messianic expectation, but that he himself is the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, this is hugely significant in Jewish thought, because in Jewish thought, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. It was the place where what God was doing on earth was taking place in that building, in that room, in that place. And Jesus here says, destroy this temple. It's as if Jesus, not as if, it is that Jesus here is transitioning away from a building and to a new place. No wonder John says in his gospel, the opening of his gospel, that he pitched his tent among us. Literally, he tabernacled with us. Jesus here casts himself as the temple itself. Not only does he cast out the money changers and cast himself as the temple itself, on another occasion, Jesus surrounds himself not with ten or seven or eight, but twelve disciples. The portent here is, uh, is absolutely pregnant with meaning. Jesus is establishing a new faithful Israel. Time after time, the things that Jesus is doing, he is, he's doing something new. He's doing something fresh. He told a parable in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, about a, a vineyard that was established, and, and uh, the landowner left the vineyard to the care of managers and stewards and others, and then he went away for a time, and he sent his servants to reap the rewards and the fruits of the vineyard, and, and uh, they stoned and, and uh, beat them, and then others were sent, and they were stoned and beaten, and finally he said, oh, I will send my son, they will reverence my son, of course the son comes, and in the parable uh, they say, ah, this is the heir, let us take him and and kill him, and then Jesus puts the question to his listeners in in the context of this parable, he says, what will the landowner do to these men? And they respond, uh, essentially pronouncing their own destiny, and say, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. And Jesus' words could could not have been misunderstood then and certainly cannot be misunderstood even today. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, he says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. Jesus is suggesting that there's going to be a massive transition, and he's not just suggesting it in parables. He's acting it out. Over and over again, the burden of his song is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He has healed many, and he has forgiven many, and and the sense here is that God is doing something new. God is doing something fresh on earth. 
Jesus surrounds himself with the 12 disciples and begins to establish what we know now as the church. Now, here's a fascinating thing. Jesus does not forego Israel. Jesus does not replace Israel. This has been a major misunderstanding in Christian theology. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is a faithful Israelite. In order for the covenant to be truly fulfilled, a faithful Israelite had to come that would, be, that would confirm the covenant in the words of Daniel. He would not only keep the covenantal promises, but in the case of Jesus, he even bore the covenantal curses. So Jesus does not replace or jettison Israel. Jesus becomes the new Israel, and all of those who put faith in him are incorporated into what God intended for Abraham to be all along. So it's not a theology of replacement, it's a theology of continuity. Jesus is the faithful, true Israelite who keeps the covenant and who bears the covenant curses. So all of this, so much of what I've communicated here, very interestingly, especially the point there about the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof, is communicated in the book of Daniel or is set against the backdrop of the book of Daniel. In fact, much of Jesus' ministry was communicated against the backdrop of the book of Daniel. This unmistakable sequence of Daniel chapter 9 goes something like this. The Messiah will be rejected and the city will be destroyed. Right? That's, that's Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. The Messiah will be rejected and the city will be destroyed. The Messiah will be rejected and the city will be destroyed. Jesus here tells the parable and says, when they kill the son, how will the landowner treat the people that have killed the son? He will miserably destroy those wicked men. Now, this is Matthew 21. When we go ahead just three short chapters into Matthew chapter 24, Jesus leaves the temple, which was a foreshadowing of himself. He leaves the temple for the last time, and he says, Behold, your house is left to you, what? Desolate. Then the very next thing that happens, Jesus goes out in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. He sits on the Mount of Olives. He looks at the temple. The disciples can sense that there's something in his demeanor. There's a sadness. They come to cheer him, and they say, look at the buildings of the temple, Jesus. Look at its stones. Look at how it glistens in the sun, to which Jesus responds, do you not see all of these things? Verily I say unto you, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Don't miss the sequence there. Jesus leaves in Matthew chapter 23 and says, your house is left to you desolate. He had gone into the temple. He had presented the various evidences of his Messiahship. Those evidences had been rejected, 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 rejected by the Jewish leadership. And Jesus here in a last act of desperation essentially says, your temple is left to you desolate. And the very next thing that he says is the city will be destroyed. This is straight out of Daniel 9. How did Jesus know this? How did Jesus know the pattern that would be fulfilled? It was because he'd studied the prophecies. He knew Daniel 7, he knew Daniel 8, and he knew Daniel 9. And the tail end of Daniel 9 there, that great 77s prophecy, the Jubilee prophecy said that when the Messiah comes, he will be cut off, but not for himself. And when that happens, the people of the prince will come and will destroy the city with a flood. Now, this sort of brings us to the end, or, or getting close to the end, of the formation of the church. The church was formed when Jesus, as the true Israel and as a faithful Israelite, kept the covenantal promises, bore the covenantal curses, and then sent his disciples, his apostles, into the world to bring the message of a Messiah, of God's kingdom having come on earth. Now, this would seem to be really good news. And, and of course, the book of Acts opens and, and, and contains a whole lot of very good news. 3,000 baptized on the day of Pentecost, thousands baptized on others, other days. Many people are healed. The gospel eventually goes not just to the Palestinian and Hellenistic Jews, but eventually even to the Gentiles themselves. And the book of Acts actually ends in the very palace of Caesar. Now, here's an interesting thing. 
The book of Acts sort of ends in Caesar's palace here with this sense that, that the gospel is, is going like a wildfire through dry brush. I mean, things are really picking up steam, and hundreds and thousands are being baptized. But come with me now to Acts chapter 20. Not all is well, and we transition to our second phase, and that is the deformation of the church. Talked about the formation of the church. Jesus says the true Israel establishes the new Israel, which is none other than those that were faithful like Abraham was faithful. But when we come to the book of Acts, we find Paul in Acts chapter 20 saying these words, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul here is speaking to the elders in Ephesus. He's on his way to Rome. He knows that he will likely possibly lose his life there. And so he says, take heed to yourselves and to the, all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking to the religious leaders, the bishops, the elders, the pastors. To shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, not I suspect, not I imagine, not I conjecture. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now that must have been alarming enough. Savage wolves coming in, not sparing the flock. But what Jesus said next must have been absolutely astonishing. Verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And in this single verse, we actually have the continuation, the continual unfolding of the great prophecies of Daniel. The greatest threat to the church would not be Caesar. In fact, the persecutions would end very rapidly, I mean, in historical terms, in AD 312 with the conversion of Constantine. But after the conversion of Constantine in AD 312, things are great for the church. The only problem is they're not great for the church. The greatest danger from the church was not the persecution from without, as Tertullian had observed that the blood of martyrs is seed. When Constantine converted, I believe it was a political move, not a genuine conversion, what happens is, is that all of the paganism and pagans begin flooding into the church, and this was far greater danger and far worse for the church than any persecution up to that point had ever been. Now, all of this, again, is coming straight out of Daniel, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. Now, go with me quickly to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, I'm in chapter 2, verse 1, we ask you not to be soon shaken or be troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. Even if you hear and a letter is signed with my name, Paul, that Jesus has come, don't believe it. Well, why not, Paul? How can you be so certain that Jesus is not coming next Thursday or next month or next week? Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes what? First, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, you can almost sense the exasperation of Paul here in verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Look at this language. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Paul, and scholars have noted, Paul here is purposefully, intentionally opaque in his language. Don't you remember when I was with you, he who restrains will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way? Why the opacity? 
Why is Paul not just expressly saying what's taking place? Well, the answer is, is that he's writing about Rome. And uh, most modern evangelical commentators get this exactly wrong. They think that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, that God himself is the restrainer. Au contraire, the restrainer was pagan Rome itself. Pagan Rome was this power, this huge, monolithic, Herculean-sized power that was preventing the man of sin from coming to the ascendancy. Don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things? This power will go into the temple of God to set himself up and show himself that he is God. Now, this is very interesting. Again, our evangelical friends, we love them very much, but they get this part wrong too. They assume that the temple of God is a building to be erected somewhere in or around present Jerusalem. Paul never uses the term temple of God that way. Paul uses the term temple of God this way. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? For Paul, the temple of God is not a building, but it's the church, right? So this power, this this anti-Christian power, which is, again, we're rooted, we are riveted inexorably to Daniel, Daniel 7 in this case, would go into the church, pretend to be God himself, and would exalt himself to a position of worship and and prestige and honor that he certainly did not deserve. Very much uh, a satanic uh, uh, ambition. Through a series of events that were geographical, political, linguistic, I mean, the list is a long one, the church actually started off quite nicely. Jesus had formed it, but then it very soon thereafter begins to go down. This is John from his epistles. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now listen carefully. Verse 3. This is 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and then John says, and now is in the world. Beloved, the first century is not even gone. John is alive well into the first century. I mean, we don't know exactly when he wrote wrote this around, say, AD 91, 92, 93, maybe as early as 87. He's saying the, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. What's Paul saying? The mystery of lawlessness is already working. What did Paul say to the Ephesian elders? From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. Now, in keeping with the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, the 1260 year prophecy, we often think that the reign of this anti-Christian and and godless power would commence in 538, and certainly it does. 538 is a day that that we can solidly attach both to history and to biblical prophecy. But 538 doesn't happen in a vacuum. The conversion of Constantine simply in 8312 simply catalyzed what was already taking place within the church where the, the bishops um, were being overseen by archbishops and then the archbishops were being overseen by regional bishops and the word of man and the prominence of man and the position of man was already beginning. Jesus is anticipating a difficult time for the church. Paul is anticipating a difficult time for the church. John is anticipating a difficult time for the church. Of course, this book of Revelation is built around this. And all of it is riveted to the book of Daniel. So this brings us up to the deformation of the church. The episcopacy gives way to the papacy, and things begin to go south very rapidly, in fact. By the time we get to what we call the Dark Ages or the medieval period, uh, the church is so far removed from biblical norms and from what God had intended, that it's just referred to as being in the wilderness, and this is Revelation 12. The church was in the wilderness, and there was another church on the throne, and we have this disconnect between what God had established and what had emerged. This brings us up to the deformation of the church. 
Now, in 1798, this system of oppression and persecution and superstition would eventually come to a crashing halt. God would begin to raise up his church in 1844. When Jesus had said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, the, the Jews of the time protested and said, have you lost your mind? Do you know how long it took us to build this temple? It took 46 years to build this temple, 46 years to establish the temple on earth. It's as if there's almost something significant here, and I don't want to read too much into this, but let me just share with you something that I find very interesting. The temple of God is the people of God, right? Are you with me on that? He sets himself up in the temple of God. In any human being, there are 46 chromosomes. Isn't that interesting? 23 from the man, 23 from the woman. 46 chromosomes to make a human being. 46 years to establish this temple. Now watch this. What is the difference in years between the end of the papal church in 1798 and the beginning of the establishment of God's church in 1844? That's 46 years, isn't it? 46 years. God was establishing, God was building his holy church. There would be an interim period. There would be a creation period, a period where old things had to pass away and all things had to become new. And in 1844, God is prepared to do something fresh, something new, something amazing, and you and I are a part of that. Quickly recapping, Jesus forms the church, establishes as as himself the, the new Israel, not as replacing Israel, but as Israel. The church becomes deformed. This was foretold in Daniel, clearly communicated by Paul, clearly communicated by John, clearly communicated by Jesus, and the church would eventually be reformed from formation to deformation and reformation, beginning in 1517 with the nailing of the theses to the door at Wittenberg in October 31. Incidentally, we're coming up on the 500-year anniversary of that. Four things were required for the Reformation, four things. You might want to write these down. You needed a mess, and the church was a mess. But we also needed a message, and the message in two words was sola scriptura, right? That was the message. In in essence, of course, there were the other solas that flowed from that, sola fide, only by faith, sola gratia, only by grace, sola deo gloria, only to the glory of God, amen and amen and amen. But all of those flow from sola scriptura, right? So you needed a message, but then you needed a means. How would the message get out? Well, fortunately, or we should say providentially, A man named Gutenberg had invented the printing press just a few years before in 1440, and the means now to communicate this message and get it into the hands of the people became available to Martin Luther and to others, and all of a sudden the world begins to change because information and literacy is newly accessible in a way that it had not been up to this point. And then finally, you need a man, and that was Martin Luther among others. You need a mess, you need a message, you need a means, and you need a man. The church was formed by Christ. The church was deformed by the anti-Christian power. The church was beginning to be reformed, and I believe that the church will be restored. But even those of us in the modern era are wandering in the wilderness. The church has slid into a Laodicean condition. What alone is the elixir for that Laodicean condition? I think there's one thing, one thing, one move. We'll talk about it tonight. Amazing message today from Pastor David Asherich, speaking at a recent Religious Liberty Summit in Atlanta, Georgia. That's part one of his presentation entitled, The Coming Storm. On our next broadcast, we'll enjoy part two of this dynamic presentation. Be sure to tune in. 
Until next time, this is Charles Mills inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. You've been listening to LifeQuest Liberty. To further explore the issues discussed on today's program, visit www.LibertyMagazine.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of religious freedom burning in your heart today.